Acts chapter 3, let's go there together. We've got a lot of work to do and not a lot of time to do it. It is uh, corny vol today, and so I'm saying that now so that I can remind myself of that because um, we have to be out of here by a certain time uh, this morning. And so uh, we are going to move as quickly as we can and get as far as we can get. So we're spending just several weeks walking through the first few uh, chapters of the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is really going to uh, work for us as it does in the Bible itself as a bridge between the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and the letters that the apostles wrote to the church that we have in the rest of the New Testament. And so if the gospels, if we look at the gospels, what we see is we see the life and ministry of Jesus in his physical body, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John recording for us what Jesus was doing, what he was saying, how he was working in his physical body leading up to his death, his burial, ultimately his resurrection, and then his ascension. Acts picks up, and it's written by the same author of the book of Luke, and his name is Luke, and he was a doctor, and he wrote the book of Acts, which really was more like Luke 2, okay? And he picks up sort of right in the where he left off in the book of Luke. In the book of Luke, he actually goes to the ascension, but in the book of Acts, he backs up just a little bit right before the ascension. It's kind of like when you watch a really good show and, and you have the next episode and right and they're like, previously on Lost. That's the one I remember like every time, you know, and it would go back and kind of give you this kind of synopsis of what had happened. Luke backs up just a little bit, gives us a reminder of what's going on. Jesus living and walking around, teaching his disciples for 40 days after the resurrection, before the ascension, unpacking for them everything that had happened in relation to all the rest of scripture. And then he ascends, says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes. There is a shift that takes place as all of God's people are transferred from the covenant of law into the covenant of grace under the operation of the Holy Spirit. And then we see, and we camped out the last couple of weeks uh, in Acts 2, 42 through 47, where we get this snapshot of what the early church was all about. Two weeks ago, we walked all the way back to uh, the Great Commission. We looked at how what Jesus was doing in building the church was this new creative order. And just like God in the beginning of time uh, created the world and then formed his people, breathed life into them and sent them, invited them into the mission of filling, subduing, and having dominion in the earth. Jesus announces his church. He speaks it into existence by his word. He forms it together by the gospel. He gives them the Holy Spirit, breathes life into them by the Holy Spirit. And what does he do? He invites them into the Missio Dei, the mission of God, which is what? It's, it's the same mission that Jesus said in the beginning. He said, be fruitful and multiply, subdue and fill the earth and take dominion. Or as we have it in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, it says what? Go therefore into all the world and preach the gospel to every living creature, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Well, what does that mean? 
but means go make more disciples. So he's speaking to disciples and he says, go make more disciples who make more disciples. What did he say to Adam and Eve in the garden? Go make more little yous that make more little yous that make more little yous, right? And so there's this new order that comes into being through Christ's church that he is forming by the gospel. The gospel a family, a people, a community, this assembly of called out ones, ecclesia, the church. And out of that church, these disciples that make up this assembly are called then to enter into the mission of God to make more little thems, to make more disciples that make more disciples. That's what the Great Commission is. And so how did they go about doing this? Well, we looked at Acts 2, 42 through 47, and we saw that it looked the way that they were doing that and the way that God was, through His Spirit, sanctifying, maturing, and growing His church were some specific means. And the means through which God was growing and maturing His church was through the Word, worship, community, mission, and multiplication. And you can see all five of those things in Acts 2, 42 through 47. Here at Redemption Hill, we kind of distill the word and worship down together into gospel. And I hope that what you experienced even this morning in the first few songs that we sang was the gospel. The words that we sing are also supposed to be the words from scripture that we preach. And it's, it's the gospel that we're reminding ourselves of. And so we're about the gospel, we're about community, and we're about mission. Well, what about multiplication? Well, what does it say in Acts 2, 42 through 47? Whose job was multiplication? It was the Lord's. It says, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So what's our job in multiplication? To expect it to work in discipleship of making more little us's, but trusting that one sows the seed, another waters, but who gives the increase? It's the Lord. Who saves people? God does. God does. I can't save anyone. You can't save anyone. But what do we do? We preach the gospel to ourselves. We preach the gospel to our families. We preach the gospel to our neighbors and our coworkers and our schoolmates. We, we preach the gospel and we trust the Holy Spirit to regenerate people and bring them to salvation. And when he does, what are we supposed to do? Open up our arms and welcome them into the family, right? Just like in a couple weeks, we are going to welcome this new little member into the church as we dedicate them, as new people come to faith in Jesus Christ, we welcome them with open arms and say, welcome to the family, right? That's how God multiplies his church. And we need to expect that and be ready for it and welcome those whom God is bringing into his church. And praise God, not many of us were wise or great, mighty, powerful, strong superstars, were we, when God called us. And not many of them will be either. And just like Brian was talking about last week, it needs a, a family to nurture this newborn infant in the Lord and bring them up. And we should expect some mess, right? We should expect some dirty nappies and some, some spit up and, and, and these things to come with infants in the Lord. And, and that's not to say, now, now can I just get a witness here? 
if any of you have ever had a baby, is that baby somehow a lesser valued individual in your home? No way, right? Now, some people get offended when we talk about some people are young in the Lord and other people are older in the Lord or infants, babies, or whatever. You don't need to get offended by that because that has nothing to do with a lesser or greater value placed on an individual any more than it does in a family. If anything, the infant gets more care, right? More attention, more care, more nurturing than the other ones. So please, if you are young in the Lord, don't, don't be offended by that language to say that, hey, some people are newborn infants in the Lord. What does that mean? It just means we need to grow up in the grace and knowledge and of, of our Lord. Amen? And we, don't, we should not do that on our own, right? Baby doesn't pop out, wah, and we put it over here and say, hey, I'll see you in a couple years when you can fend for yourself. Is that how it works? No, we, we bring the baby, we hold the baby, we feed the baby, we change the baby, we bathe the baby. We have to do everything for this baby. And if you're new in the Lord and you're struggling because you've kind of felt relegated over to the side, how does a baby let people know it needs some attention? Cries, right? Cry out and say, hey, I, I need a little help. I'm new in the Lord and I'm, I'm, I'm I've, I've been trying to figure this out on my own and will someone come and help me? And do you know what we call that? We call that discipleship. We call that teaching someone how to be. Now, what we see here in Acts chapter 3, and I want to get to this, is let's just start in verse 1 and we'll keep going. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. Now, what we saw in Acts 2, 42-47 is we saw they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, right? So there, there's this organizational structure around them coming together corporately to worship God, to sit under the teaching of the word, to receive the sacrament, to pray together, right? And then it talks about a lot more life. That's just verse 42. You go through 43, 44, 45, 46, and 47. You have the rest of their lives. And it seems that their discipleship and them making disciples and them growing in maturity and the knowledge and the grace of the Lord had way more of their life involved than just a corporate worship gathering. Right? That was just verse 42. But what did it look like? Well... It says they were, uh, signs and wonders were being done by the apostles, okay? And all who believe were together. So there, there, there's this kind of continual rhythm of them coming together. Um, in the very beginning, they didn't all necessarily live together. Uh, around AD 70, they did just vacate Jerusalem. And then they gathered in a specific area where the Christians were all gathered together and they did kind of live together in a specific area, but that wasn't exactly what's happening here in Acts 2. And, and, and they were holding all things in common. We talked about how this was not communism. This is not compulsory. The apostles weren't there counting everyone's coins and their possessions saying, okay, now we're going to spread this out. No, it was... As the love of Christ compelled them, 2 Corinthians 5.14, as they saw a need, those who had much and were given much, they gave much. 
to fulfill the need of those who are in the body. Um, history shows us that, that there, there was not a, a beggar among them, okay? Um, that, that those even who were beggars before they came to Christ, as they were welcomed into the family of God, their needs were provided for by the family of God. They were selling their possessions and belongings, distributing to the proceeds to all as any had need. This wasn't a Sunday morning activity, right? Again, it's as they saw a need in daily life, they were meeting the need. And day by day, again, hear that daily, day by day, what? Attending the temple together, so they're, they're maintaining this rhythm of gathering together corporately. But then what? And, again, day by day still applies, breaking bread in their homes they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. So all this that's happening in the body is spilling out into the community that's not a part of the community of faith. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. So what does that mean? It means it looked a lot like normal life. It means not a lot of their daily rhythms of their life necessarily changed but rather they just involved each other in them. And so we've said, hey, if we're going to get back to what the church was supposed to be about in the very beginning, this is it. This is what we're challenging ourselves and each other to enter into is a way of life where we don't, we don't change a whole lot of what we are doing, but we just reorient the rhythms of what we are doing to involve each other. Now, if your life is lived in such a way that you have no margin to involve the rest of the people of the community of faith in the rhythms of your life or enter into their rhythms with them, then that might be a problem that you need to prayerfully address as whether you're, if you're a single, you, between you and God, if you want to talk to the elders about it and say, hey, what do, what do I do? I know this is what I'm called to do. How help me? right? Uh, as a family, husbands and wives talk together and say, how, how are we reorienting the rhythms of our lives to involve the community of faith? How are we reorienting the rhythms of our lives to involve people that aren't a part of the community of faith? Because that's the other side of the coin. If you're so wrapped up in your life that you don't have an unsafe friend or a, you know, whatever, that's a problem. If you don't have an unsafe friend, I hope to God that means that your neighbors are saved. Like for me to even say, you have, for you to say, I, have no, I don't know any unsaved people, and you know your neighbors, they better be saved if you're going to say that. Because you need to know your neighbors. God placed you there where you are for a reason, for a purpose. You need to know your neighbors. And, and if, if they're saved, then praise God. Maybe it's time to move and find new neighbors. I don't know. Or just widen the scope of your life or something. But are you with me? The daily rhythms of their lives, they were involving each other in them. And they carried on living the way they were living. If someone was worshiping a pagan god, they did not carry on worshiping the pagan god and involving people in the rhythm of that, right? There are certain things that we may need to cut out of our lives completely because we are disciples of Jesus Christ, chosen and called by God. And, and while Brian said we may not have shrines built in our homes, and if you do, you need to go home today, tear it down, burn it, get rid of it, 
because maybe you do. But we build shrines in our heart. We look to, I mean, the three main ones are sex, power, and money. And for our culture in the United States, those are probably three of the biggest idols that even we in the community of faith fall prey to going back to. You know, in the Old Testament, there were a few major idols in the land of Canaan. There was Baal and Ashtoreth. There was the Philistine god. I can't remember his name. Somebody help me. They took the Ark of the Covenant in there and he fell on his face in front of the Ark of the... I can't remember. The Philistine god looked like a fish or something. I can't remember his name. If you read the Bible and you go through the Old Testament, you'll find there were times that God's people fell back into worshiping these main gods that were in this land that the, the other people worshiped. And for us, even in the community of faith as believers, we fall prey to falling back into the rhythms and the patterns of chasing sex, power, and money. Because those are three of the biggest idols in our culture. And maybe take an account of your life today. Maybe the Holy Spirit wants you to take an account of your life today and say, where are you worshiping those three things? Where are you running to those things rather than to God? Where are you obsessed with obtaining or keeping or cultivating those things rather than being obsessed with obtaining, pursuing, and cultivating your relationship with Jesus Christ? Something to think about. But I want you to see how Peter and John, verse 1, chapter 3, were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. I mean, it's the ninth hour, which means it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. The Jewish people had three main hours of prayer, 9, 12, and 3 every day. Uh, this is when the evening sacrifice would be made. And this is the time that Peter and John are headed to the temple to pray. We already know in Acts 2, they, they were still attending the temple together. Notice that they're doing it together. They are on their way together. It's not Peter's on his way and he meets up with John there. They are on their way together and it's at the appointed time. So this is a normal daily rhythm of their life. And along the way, they meet this lame man. The lame man who was lame from birth who is being carried, possibly being carried away or being carried there just for the evening prayers, but it's a pretty lucrative place to hang out and ask people for money. Why? Because they're heading into the temple to pray to God. And in a system that is very much centered around if you do this, then God might do this, if you're headed in to pray to God and there's someone standing there begging for money, it's reasonable to assume that you might be compelled to give to this person, hoping that in giving to this person, you might get what you want when you go into the temple to pray. So these beggars would be brought to the temple to beg from those who were going into the temple, and it was probably the best place to do that. We see that he was lame from birth, and we also see that other people at the end of this little passage saw him and recognized him as the one who sat at this gate every day. Now, let me ask you a question. Did Jesus ever walk through this gate? In Jerusalem, the temple gate? Walking? Absolutely. If this man had been laid there for years, does this mean that Jesus ever walked past this guy? 
we can reasonably assume that he did. But Jesus never healed him. Peter and John have walked by this guy before. Why, why didn't they heal him before? Why didn't Jesus heal him before? Why didn't, why didn't they heal him before? What, what's going on? Well, this isn't just Peter and John running around like throwing out miracles, right? Woo! Yeah, you get a miracle and you get a miracle and you get a miracle. That's not what this is. This is Peter and John in the normal daily rhythm of their life in a moment being led by the Spirit to go minister to this man. A man that they had walked by before. A man that they had walked by with Jesus before. But in this moment, remember those times in the book of Luke when we read about Jesus and it would say, and he had compassion on him, right? Or on her. And he would reach out and he would minister to this person. Well, this is what's happening here. The love of Christ is compelling Peter and John in this kind of interruptive way on their way to minister to this, to this man. And so they do. Now notice that Peter says, look at us. I have no silver and gold. Which implies that if he had silver and gold, that Peter would have wanted to give it to him. He said, I don't have that. But what I do have, I'm going to give to you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now, notice that he said, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Remember one of the disciples as he was being called, and they said, hey, Jesus from Nazareth is here. And he said, Can, has anything good ever come out of Nazareth? Nazareth had this connotation of being kind of the backside of nowhere. And, and it was kind of a reproach to be called someone from Nazareth. Now, I won't pick on anyone here, but we have places like that too, okay? And that's what it was like. But Peter makes this distinction. Why? Because everyone who was around at this time knew the things that had happened in the recent days. And he wanted to make sure that no one was mistaken which Jesus he was talking about. Because they knew it was Jesus of Nazareth that had been crucified. And as we walk through the rest of what Peter preaches in chapter 3, we find that this is what he was after. He was after preaching the gospel. So Peter and John, they heal this man. He's raised up. And, and he says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Now, I want you to understand this first and foremost. When he says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, that is not equivalent to saying abracadabra, hocus pocus. I think sometimes in the church people think that, oh, if I want God to do what I want him to do, I have to pray it this way. You pray for someone and there's that compulsion. Oh, I didn't say in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Why was Peter saying in Jesus' name? It wasn't because those are the magic words. Now, can I just get a witness? There are no magic words in Christianity. We don't believe in incantation or magic. We believe in Jesus Christ. That God sent his son to live a perfect life for us and in our place and then to die a substitutionary and atoning death for us in our place, to be buried in submission to God's will and rest 
in the Holy Spirit to be raised by God on the third day. He did that. That's what we believe. We believe that Jesus did that, and we believe that it was Him doing that that purchases for us our redemption, and that by believing that He did that, we are justified before God. That's what Christianity is. And now we live our lives in light of what God in Christ did for us. There are no magic words in Christianity. If you prayed a prayer when you came to faith, it was not that prayer that saved you. You were saved before you uttered any words. Because it's the Holy Spirit who saves you, who regenerates your heart, who gives you faith to believe in Jesus Christ. You were saved before you uttered the words. You praying that prayer was simply an, an outward compulsion and affirmation of what God was doing on the inside of you. So why is Peter saying in Jesus' name, in, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth? He wants the lame man and everyone around him to know whose authority and by whom this miracle is being done. Peter is saying, it's not even me who's doing this, but it is only under the authority of Jesus, by his authority, that I'm telling you to rise up and walk. And it's, it's not just any Jesus. Did you know Jesus was a very popular name around Jesus' time? Uh, it's the Greek form of the Hebrew Yeshua or Joshua, as we would say. Very popular name. So to say Jesus of Nazareth was to say this Jesus. You know the one. You know what happened. This Jesus. The one whom you crucified, which is what Peter will get to. And what happens? All the people saw him walking and praising God, recognizing him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now, normally we stop there. Let's keep going. While he clung to Peter and John, what does it say? All the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. What was Peter's profession before he became a disciple of Jesus? He's a fisherman. Now, I know that they use nets. Okay, I know that Peter used nets. But how do we fish today? Get, get your pole, get your line. I mean, some of us do commercial fishing. Maybe you do this a little differently, okay? But if I'm going to go fishing, I need, I need my rod, need some line. At the end of that line, what do I need? I need a hook, and what else? Something that is going to entice these fish to eat the hook, right? And if I'm going to go fish, I want to know where the fish are, correct? And the fish just aren't everywhere, right? You go to the lake, you can't just throw your line anywhere in the lake and expect to get the best catch of fish. I mean, I'm not much of a fisherman, but I think that's true. Anyone else a better fisherman than me? There are specific spots along the lake based on how the lake is formed and how the trees come in this way and how it goes under the, the, the rocks this way where the fish tend to congregate and that's where you want to throw your line for the best chance at catching the most fish. Yes? Yep. 
Peter and John are on their way where? Well, let's back up. Jesus called them. He said, come follow me and I'm going to what? I'm going to make you fishers of men. So now they have a different sea that they're fishing in for a different catch. Amen? And so where are Peter and John going? They're going to where the fish are. They're going to where the fish are. And what happens along the way is that the Holy Spirit directs them to this lame man, compels them to reach out to him. God provides a healing miracle which does what? Baits the hook. What do we see? We see the people looking at him, recognizing, and it's like... It's, it, what does the text say? It says they ran. They literally ran to Peter. And then Peter's standing there and he's going, there's a lot of fish here. I'm a fisherman. What should I do? Cast the net. Throw the line. Right? And so what does Peter do? He casts the net. And what does he preach to them? The gospel. We don't have time to walk through all of Peter's sermon homework today. Go read Peter's sermon. He proclaims to them Jesus and him crucified. And at the end of it, he says to them, And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days, You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. What's he saying? He's saying repent. God, God's here to turn you from your, your wickedness. And though you rejected him, though you were of the ones who said, crucify him, he's here offering grace to you today. And so Peter cast the net. Now, if we carry on reading, we find that it was a great catch indeed, because in chapter 4, it says, but many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. That's a catch. But how did it happen? It happened while Peter and John were on their way in the daily rhythm of their life. Let me ask you a question. How, how did Jesus disciple the disciples? They sit in a classroom. They have certain books they had to read. I mean, I'm not dissing those things. Classroom can be effective for certain things. Reading books are good. I read a lot. Okay? It was OJT, right? Jesus was walking for three years, and along the way, he was inviting these guys to come along with him, and as they went, Jesus discipled them. They walked through a field, and he says, Hey, look at the wheat. Though a grain uh, stands alone, it will never produce anything. But if it dies and is buried in the ground, it will produce this great harvest. And, and he, he begins to tell them these parables, and it's, it's along the way. right? They walk past a, a fig tree. He's like, Look at that fig tree. It hasn't produced anything. Curses the fig tree. And they're like, What is going on? All these things. And then along the way, they're going, Jesus, what does this mean? He goes, Well, let me tell you what it means. Along the way, they're... He's teaching them, discipling them, training them. So what did they do after Jesus left? Well, they carried on along with the daily rhythms of their life. They sat down, they ate meals, they prayed together, they walked together, they talked together. Did you know that in the Great Commission, when it says in English, go, therefore, 
that really the most appropriate way to read that in the original is as you are going. As you are going, make disciples. What does this mean for us this morning? It means that we don't need a program to make disciples. It means that we don't need some kind of special place that you need to come to and that's how we're going to make disciples. Because how are disciples made? They're made along the way. Well, how do you know what you're supposed to do? You are led by the Holy Spirit. And as things happen along the way, you do them together. Peter and John are engaged in the daily rhythm of their life. And along the way, the Holy Spirit leads them to this man. And they just do it together. Notice it wasn't one or the other. It was together. And it's how we're meant to do this. We're meant to do this together along the way. As we eat, as we talk, as we play, as we walk through all the rhythms of our lives, we're meant to do these things together and to do them with gospel intentionality. So that when, this, when he went to, he said, such as I have, give I thee, who is he giving to this man? He's giving him Jesus. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk so that the man would know that what came from Peter's hand was really coming from Christ. So as we go along our daily lives, we're going to see people in need. They might not necessarily be lame people, but they might just be people in need and everyone has a different need. And you might see a person with a need and you might go, I don't have what they need, but I know they're in need. But what do you have that you can give them and point them to Christ? That's what you need to give to them. He was asking for money, and Peter didn't have any. And how many times do we see people that are looking for some specific thing? They're holding out their hand to us, asking for something that we don't have. But what do we have, church? We have Christ, which is better than any amount of money, which is better than any healing, which is better than anything. Christ is better. Jesus is better. We sang it a couple weeks ago. They're, They're looking for hope. We have Christ. They're looking for security. We have Christ. They're looking for for some kind of joy. We have Christ. And it's Christ that we can give to them. But we have to open our mouths and we have to tell them about him. We have to proclaim Christ and him crucified and resurrected to them. Amen? We have to do that. So Peter and John, on their normal daily rhythm of their life, go along, led by the Holy Spirit. They reach out to this man who's in need, and they give him what they have. They have Jesus. And Jesus is better, and he's enough. And this man is healed, and I believe saved. He he stands. How, why does he stand? This man's been lame his whole life. Why does he stand unless he believed what Peter was saying to him? And in faith, he takes Peter's hand. Peter raises him up and he walks. And what does it do? It provides a gospel apologetic, a moment where Peter can proclaim the gospel. So maybe there's someone in your life, a neighbor, who is just alone. And their house is a wreck and in shambles. You can come along and begin to care for this person. Learn their name. That's a good place to start. Learn their name. Learn their story. Begin to see 
areas that you can serve them in. Fill a need. But don't just fill a need or it's just social justice. And social justice is good, but it's not the point. Peter fulfills a need, but that provides a greater platform to preach the gospel, to share Jesus, right? Now, we read on, we learn that there are some people that were healed just by Peter passing by and his shadow touching them. Peter didn't let that be the case here, did he? He's like, well, I'm tired. We get to go to prayer. Make sure my shadow casts on this guy. You're good, buddy. You better be praising Jesus for that. No, what does he do? He opens his mouth and he proclaims Christ to him. And so, yes, serve people, care for them, try to feel needs in their lives, but use that to proclaim the gospel to them. And keep doing it. And don't wait for them to ask, necessarily. I mean, that doesn't mean you have to lead with it, unless the Holy Spirit leads you to lead that way. But don't put it off. Don't say you don't think you've got to wait for the person to go, so why are you doing all this for me? If you need to, tell them. Hey, I just want you to know, we love you. And, and, and while they sit there and go, what? Like, don't even wait. Just say, we, we love you. We just feel like God's put it in our heart to love you. Like, you're our neighbor for a reason. And, and we believe that. And what we can do this because God's done this for us. If you, if you want to talk about that sometime, let me know. Or better yet, let me know when you want to talk about that. Right? It's a hard sell, but it's all right. It's an, it's an assumptive. I'm, I'm, I'm learning these things. It's an assumptive sale, right? <laughs> I got a thumbs up from the, from the salesman there. Right? Like, let me know when you want to talk about that. Because this is what we should believe, church. Every sphere of life that we're in right now is not an accident. God has placed us there for a reason, for his glory. And how is God most glorified when Jesus is lifted up into his rightful place? Amen? And so if we are placed where we are for God's glory, if it's not an accident, if it's not a mistake, then every neighbor that you have, every coworker that you have, the person in the cubicle next to you, the kids on your kids, uh, the families that are part of your kids' soccer team or gymnastics, dance, whatever your kids do, thing, whoever that is that you're around, you are there to exist for God's glory, to participate in the Missio Dei, to make disciples. How do you do that? Along the way. As you go, make disciples. Meet a need and proclaim the gospel. Meet a need and proclaim the gospel and wait for the Holy Spirit to do the work. And when the Holy Spirit does, and he will. Why? Because if God placed you there, he's not far from... Can can, can you just grab this for a minute? God is not far from anyone in your life because they are in your life. Anyone that's in your life, God's not far from them. You may look at them and go, man, God, I don't know how they could ever love God or ever be saved or what. If you are in their life, God is not far from them. Because he's with you. And he said he would be with you until the end of the age. And you can walk with confidence knowing that where you are, God has placed you. And what you need, he will provide 
for you to enter into what he is doing and to make disciples in the everyday stuff of life. It's when, the, it's when everyday people do everyday things in everyday life with gospel intentionality that God brings the increase and multiplies his church. I want to see every single one of us in a healthy way making disciples. And that doesn't, you can be discipling people that haven't even come to faith yet. It's like incognito James Bond stuff. You can start catechizing people. They don't even know what's happening yet. You just start asking them questions and then giving them the answer. And then, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then just keep reiterating it. You start catechizing them. They don't even know what's going on. Start telling people that you're praying for them, that you care about them. And then do it. Or just pray for somebody. Look for people who, who already have their hands open to you that are either already giving to you and serving you that you can give back to and serve as well but do it with gospel intentionality because you can love everyone on your block and give them everything that you have and if you never open up your mouth and proclaim Jesus to them, you wasted your time. Jesus could have healed this guy and moved on. Or Peter, Jesus did it, but Peter, that could have happened. Peter could have moved on and it would have been a waste because that man, though he was lame his whole life, would have had a few years of not being lame, that would have been awesome, but he would have died and gone to hell. And hell's real and eternity's a long time, but Jesus is better and greater and bigger and more powerful than our sin and our frustrations, and he's more powerful than our feelings of being unable to do what we think we ought to do. Trust him. Step out, speak out. Live everyday life with gospel intentionality and watch what God will do. Father, we just come to you and submit ourselves to you. We come knowing that, that we have all this figured out. But the one thing we know is that we need you. We don't just need you once. We need you every single day. And we don't just want the same bit that we've got every day. We want to explore the depths of the creator of the universe. That we would know you more intimately each new day than we did the day before. Lord, I don't believe that we can ever run out of things to learn and know about you. And so I just come this morning, God, simply and say, would you please show us who you are Invite us more deeply into relationship with you through your Son. Do the work by your Spirit, God. And help us to see, help Redemption Hill to see where you have placed us as our mission field. Help us to see it, God. Only you can do that. God, I can preach till I'm blue in the face this morning, but you, by your Spirit, you have to open up our eyes to see our daily lives as our mission field. Only you can do that, God. I remember, Lord, the day that you broke my heart. Do that for us today, I pray. God, thank you that Peter saw this man, that he set his eyes on him. God, put people in our lives and by your Spirit, set our eyes on them. 
Compel us by the love of Christ in our hearts for particular people. God, I know we can't do it for every single person, but God, show us those people in our lives that you are directing us to, to to love, to care, to meet a need, and to preach the gospel to. We pray and ask it in Jesus' name, believing that you will, even today, even now. Amen.